Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer, Netflix and the culture of reinvention. Netflix, I think uh, probably everyone listening to this, if you don't have a Netflix account, you at the very least know what it is. That wasn't always the case, obviously. If we go back a couple of decades, Blockbuster was all the rage. There'd be a, a seemingly a Blockbuster store in, in every... Uh, in every suburb, I used to remember the old Friday nights in a blockbuster, get a new release or get a weekly or maybe rent a Nintendo 64 game. Um, and blockbuster was just massive. They were more than a thousand times the size of Netflix. And Netflix with Reed and his, his co-founders, they walked into Blockbuster's head office trying to sell themselves as this small little company to get Blockbuster to buy them out. Yeah, they just wanted to sort of just flip the company, I guess, at that time from a big behemoth like Blockbuster. It makes sense. They're the big dogs in town. You know, you just sell yourselves onto them. And uh, so, Reed, he was a bit of a nervous wreck at the time. I mean, they'd only had 300,000 subscribers and they were off to a rocky start. They were losing money every year, $57 million at that time. So, they were eager to make a deal and move on. And Netflix, obviously, back in the early 2000s, they weren't the Netflix we know today. They were actually a, like an order by mail. You you order a DVD on the website and then they post it to you. You watch the DVD, then you post it back and then you can order the next one and they post it to you again. And as you say, they're losing money, a shitload of money. In fact, $57 million they'd lost in one year. And so, they sat around. They tried to pitch to Blockbuster. The CEO kind of nodded along, listened into their pitch and then Reed says, okay, cool. Do you guys want to buy us 50 mil and we're yours? And they said, no bloody way, mate. Get out of here. Get out of here. And Reed, he was devastated. He was just thinking all the 60,000 employees at Blockbuster were just laughing at him behind his <laughs> back. And he was doubting himself really like, why the hell would Blockbuster want them? But from that point onwards, little by little did the world change. And the business that he was in uh, it started to grow for a few different reasons. Well, in 2002, two years after this meeting where they tried to sell themselves, Netflix had grown so much that Reed took the company public. Fast forward just another couple of years. In 2010, Blockbuster went the exact other direction, declared bankruptcy. Now, apparently, they've got one single store left and I don't even know why they even still have one store. Whereas for Netflix, they've just gone gangbusters. They've got 167 million subscribers across 190 different countries. They're obviously creating their own content as well and they've been nominated for Oscars. They've won three Oscars in 2019 uh, and they've really obviously pivoted from this DVD by post-rental to become just the biggest streaming service in the world. Yeah, that's it. So, they're just killing it right now, reading his company. So, how the hell did this happen? If you think about that time when he was pitching to Blockbuster and they just laughed him out of the office and Blockbuster obviously went down all the way through to bankruptcy. So, there was two big differences there. Blockbuster had the brand, the power, the resources and the vision and Blockbuster probably should have beat them hands down. However, Netflix had one thing that Blockbuster didn't. Netflix, they had a culture that valued people over process. It emphasized innovation over efficiency and they had very few controls. They had a culture of achieving top performance with talent density and leading employees through context, not control. And this allowed Netflix to continually grow and change the world. You could almost say they have a culture where no rules rules. You could, you could say that. You could say that's no the, rules, the rules. title. Yeah. So, let's get into it. In spring of 2001, a crisis struck. The big old internet bubble, it had burst. Venture capital funding had, had really slowed to a very slow trickle, uh, if at all. Morale in the office was low and it was about to get lower. 
because uh, big old Reed and the leaders of Netflix are about to lay off a third of their staff. Oh, they're a very small company at this stage. It's a bit of a killer blow, you'd think. When they were making the decision, all right, who, who do we get a can? We need to get rid of some people. They didn't have any obviously poor performers. They didn't have just like, you know, Joe Blow rocking up, blind off his face after a huge night on, on the red wines or anything like that. They had people who were exceptionally creative that did great work and collaborated well with others. And they went all into the keepers pile. Um, the difficulty from here were the ones that were sort of the borderline cases, right? You got your colleagues and friends and great mates, but they were sort of adequate at work, just getting the bare minimum done. And others worked like crazy, but you needed to hold their hand through everything. Mm. So everyone had their little ticks on these borderline cases. Yeah, plenty of ticks. A couple of crosses that sneak in, it's kind of hard to work out. If there's more ticks than crosses, how do you work out who to actually get rid of? So it's a, definitely a tough one. But at the end of the day, many had to go. They picked out, okay, here's the third. These guys are getting the boot, which was obviously a big blow to the morale. But Reed and the rest of the leaders are kind of expecting there's going to be kind of like a second wave here because the people who are left are going to think, oh my God, like it could be, it could have been us. This company sucks. They're getting rid of everybody. What a shocking place to work. And they were really dreading the worst. They thought that there was going to be a, a really a second wave or a second half of the storm that was going to hit them after this as well. However, they gave everyone the boot and then within a few weeks, this huge storm that they were waiting to come, it didn't happen and quite the opposite happened actually. The atmosphere, it just improved dramatically because they were in cost-cutting mode. They just let the workforce go, which is bad, but the whole office was just suddenly buzzing with passion, energy and ideas. The people that were left were obviously all the guns and they kind of got rid of the people who were good, you know, but just... They weren't great, but they got rid of them. And all that you had left was the people who were madly in love with their work. So in the days and months that followed, they found that the office, the vibe really completely changed. It came to under they came to this understanding that what they had done by getting rid of some of the average people is that actually increased the talent density. So the talent density, they only had the guns left and talented people, they actually make each other more effective. Mm, so it's a bit of like a positive feedback loop with that when you're just weeding out all the the crap and you just end up with just the diamonds and they just amplify on top of each other because a team with one or two merely adequate employees, just a couple of stragglers, they bring down the performance of everyone on the team and if you have a team with say five superstars and two just adequate ones, the adequate ones are going to sap the manager's energy who have now got less time for the top performers. They're going to reduce the quality of group discussions. They might just like throw out just a comment where everyone is sort of, Jesus, where'd that come from? <laughs> just derail the whole meeting. That's it. They'll force others to develop ways to work around them, reducing the efficiencies. They're going to drive the guns to quit. They're going to think, oh, I'm not going to work with mm -hmm. this, this person here. And they're probably more than anything just going to show the team that the managers out there, they're accepting mediocrity. Um, this is the subpar level of standard that we all need to meet. And with that, you're going to multiply the problem throughout the team. Yeah, for the top performers, the great workplace to them doesn't mean the lavish office, the inbuilt gym, the table tennis tables, the free sushi for lunch. For them, a great workplace is being surrounded by people who are great and can help you get better. So when everybody is excellent and you've got rid of just the merely adequate people, then performance just keeps spiraling up and up and up. This performance is contagious. It was Professor Willie Phelps of the University of New South Wales in Australia. He conducted... Pretty wild study, actually, demonstrating contagious behavior in the work environment. What he did is he, he created several teams of four college students 
which is always easy, the college students. You just get yeah. to pay them 20 bucks and they're just scrambling for these studies. And he asked each team to complete a different management task in just 45 minutes. They said the top performers would get 100 bucks, which is, yeah, that's pretty juicy for 45 minutes of work if you do well. But what the college students didn't know was that Big Willie, he'd snuck in a couple of uh, actors into these teams. So within each team, there was one actor and they had different roles. So maybe the actor would play the role of a slacker. There would be someone who would disengage. They'd put their feet up on the table. They'd be texting during the meetings or they might've, he might have slipped in a jerk and the jerk is someone who just sarcastically says things like, oh, are you kidding me? Clearly, you've never taken a business class before. Sounds like a real jerk. Or maybe there's just the depressive pessimist who just uh, act, looked like his cat had just died. Was that in the book? The depressive pessimist just looked like his cat had just died, always complaining, saying, we're never going to win. Why even try? So having these little actors slipped into the group, Willie wanted to see what would happen to the group. So the actor did so obviously without tipping off the rest of the team that he was just, just acting like a regular student with these interesting characteristics. And some of the findings, the research, they found that whenever the teams are exceptionally talented, all it takes is one individual's bad behavior to bring down the effectiveness of each individual and the mm. entire team, of course. It turns out that even if you have three superstars and this one slacker or jerk or depressive pessimist, the entire performance of that team was worse by a whopping 30 to 40% just from that one dud. 30 to 40%, that's like... <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it's a lot. Of, it's a lot. Um, and the research just, is just, just says crazy and it sort of demonstrates a bit of academically what Reed actually did with his decisions in improving the talent density. They got rid of the jerks. They got rid of... Not full-blown jerks, yeah. but semi-jerks, semi-slackers, <laughs> semi-depressive pessimists. Turns out the depressive pessimists sitting there in the corner with like their cat just died and just yeah. miserable, they were the worst. Mm. They turned things to shit the most out of all of them. So with this, if you've got a group with a few merely adequate performers, that adequate is going to likely spread and infect everyone else, bringing down the performance of the organization. So the first thing that Reed and Netflix did to really accentuate the performance was increasing talent density. They was getting all the guns and get ridding, get, getting rid of all the, the duds, but not even the duds, just the people who were just adequate. People who were just good enough, they'd get rid of them and just only have the superstars. And then on top of that, what they did was they paid top dollar. They offered rock star pay to these superstars. So you've got rid of the duds and you're paying everybody else a fair bit more than what they'd probably normally expect. The rock star principle is rooted in another famous study in the basement of Santa Monica, uh, at 6.30 a.m. Um, here, there was nine trainee programmers led into a room of a dozen computers. Each was handed a note with a series of long coding and debugging tasks and programming, and they need to complete it in 120 minutes. Now, they'd expect that the best nine programmers would outperform the average adequate programmers by a factor of, say, maybe two to three. Mm. But of the group of nine, all were at least adequate performers, but it turns out the best far outperformed the worst. The best was 20 times faster at coding, 25 times faster at debugging, and 10 times faster at program execution than the person who was the lowest. That's, that's pretty crazy, like a 20 to 25x <laughs> difference. And so really what that means is like you could hire a team of 20 people who are just you know adequate or you can get this one rock star. And obviously, you're not going to pay the rock star 20 times as much, but if you paid that rock star double what they would normally expect you're saving a hell of a lot of money and getting a better result yeah if you got a team of like say you're paying someone 50 grand who's just adequate and non-rock star 
with this math, you're better off paying a million dollars a yeah. year. You get a you get a proper rock star for a million bucks <laughs> a year. Genuine rock you? star. Probably get four rock stars for an army. So it does add up financially, doesn't it? This takes it a little bit too far, maybe. But Gates says that what Gates said is he what Bill Gates. Obviously, everyone knows Bill Gates. Um, he's found that uh, a programmer, like a good programmer, compared to an average programmer, he says they're not ten times better, but they're ten thousand times better. Now I don't know. You're not going to pay them ten thousand times. It's like the salary for Billy. It's more than what Bill Gates is earning. But he says obviously, like someone who can combine the the skills with the creativity uh, is so much better than someone who just executes and does what they're told. It might seem like this is only available to the software industry, where it's just high leverage kind of stuff with coding, but it really isn't just in the software place. It's in a whole range of other industries. At a meta level, what the great software engineer actually is doing or the person who is a rock star, they can see these conceptual patterns that the other users can't um, and they can adjust their perspective in different in different ways, um, not stuck in a specific way of thinking. She has to push, pull or prod herself to look beyond. These are sort of the same skills that are highest leverage in any creative job. That's right. In any creative job, there's going to be a massive difference between someone who just fills a job description and somebody who looks to the future, innovates, comes up with new ideas, uh, comes up with a completely way of doing things and that's the rock star that you want in any creative job. So, finding those superstars is going to be far better than just having 20 times the number of people who are just executing. Yeah, I remember when we were launching our book, we, uh, we had a few different ways we could have do it. We could have gone the high volume, cheap approach which was very tempting, wasn't it? Because you, you wouldn't have to spend too much money. But then we had a proper rock star send her CV in to do help with the PR of our book. Mm. And we're thinking, shit, what is she contacting us about? She's done <laughs> NRL. She's brought Liverpool into Australia, all this sort of stuff. And then uh, obviously charged a, a shitload. But luckily, we did do it because those people who are the rock stars, she had all the contacts and the relationships with all the people. And I mean, a factor of effectiveness to someone who's mm. just starting out in their career, or it's off chops uh, comparatively. Yeah, that's right. There's no way that if we had paid the, the average salary, we would have been getting multiple TV spots. But by finding that rock star who, who could do that, it was worth the extra investment. So the caveat to that is you got to pay pay the big bucks, but it's 100% worth it. And then you Did you gonna... say the caveat again? We got an email last time you said caviar instead of caveat. <laughs> it's C-A-V-E-A-T instead of C-A-V-A-I-R. Not black caviar, the racehorse, or caviar, the, the fish eggs. <laughs> okay, I've, been, I've been getting that wrong for so long. The worst was, um, <laughs> I won't even say it, the body language term, which was a very common word, which I probably should have learned when I was three years old. I was saying gesture for years. Oh, gesture instead of gesture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. I'm an idiot. <laughs> but that that uh, the listener who emailed in Jonesy's now corrected caviar to caveat. Yes. <laughs> I don't even know what we're talking about. What is the caveat? What were we saying? Well, we'll move on now because <laughs> because adequacy we need to weed them out. We need to weed out the adequate ones. They're just the, the ones you're struggling along, and we just want a team of rock stars everywhere. And Netflix have found a way to probably do the weeding process to pluck them out and just get rid of them. Pretty brutal sort of culture, it sounds like. Mm. Um, Reed, he says he doesn't like people saying, oh, we've got a family environment at our workplace. <laughs> pretty much every workplace I've been at, probably not the current one, but previous ones, is all, uh, all about, you know, the family, family, family environment. But 
what Reed saw was after 2001 layoffs, they didn't treat people like family. They just gave heap of people the arse. You're not going <laughs> to give people in the family the arse. That's right. Even the crazy old uncle who gets drunk at all the, all the family dinners, they're still part of the family. You're not just going to kick him out. Oh, of course. If Uncle Andy rocks up to work drunk on a Monday morning like he does at your, uh, your family Christmas, <laughs> you probably should be getting rid of Uncle Andy out yeah, of the art. It's family. You can't do that to your family. So, <laughs> family is obviously not a good metaphor for attracting and developing a high-talent, dense workforce. A better metaphor, uh, Big Rito says, is it's more like a, a professional sports team. So, a professional sports team, obviously, there's almost there's some of those family elements that you want everybody to click and collaborate and get along. But at the same time, if someone's underperforming, you trade them out. Uh, you rip up their contract, you shaft them off to another team in a different city and try to recruit somebody better to fill that slot to maximize the performance of your team overall. So, it's not a company shouldn't really be like a family. It should be more like a professional sports team. Yeah, the coach would just swap and trade players in and out throughout the year in order to make sure that the best person is in the best position every time and they need to win in the marketplace. A pro sports team, it demands excellence. You're counting on the manager to make sure every position so it keeps the manager accountable. You're training to win. You're expecting to receive candid and continuous feedback on how to actually improve your game all the time. Everyone knows that effort isn't enough. You need to put... A B-grade performance doesn't cut it. Everyone needs to be bringing their A-game every time they step on the pitch. So, how Netflix assesses their employees is like a pretty simple question to ask yourself. They call it the keeper test. So, who's a keeper? Who do you want to keep? And you, uh, hypothetically, if this person, one of your team members, walked into your office tomorrow and said, uh, I've got a new job offer, I'm going to quit and move somewhere else, how much would you fight to try to keep them? If you would like really, you know, say we'll offer you more money, we'll offer you a better title, if you really desperately want to keep this person, they're a keeper. If they walk in and say that and there's a bit of relief and you think, oh, I kind of didn't really want this bloke in my team anyway, he's kind of stuffed up a couple of things, it's probably not the worst that he's leaving, then you probably should have already shafted him. Get, give him the boot straight away. Yeah. So you need to be asking you're doing the keeper test every time you see him, just look him in the eye and go, I wouldn't keep you. Get out of here. <laughs> and so what he says is if you're asking yourself this question of every person you team and there's somebody who if they quit you'd be a little relieved get rid of them and uh, it's pretty harsh to say obviously but what he says is adequate performance gets a gets a juicy severance package so you get rid of them now you pay them a fair bit of money to get rid of them and then you look for a superstar that can fill their spot yeah and four it kind to six of, months kind of sounds weird to say yeah. i'm going to give you a shitload of money to leave mm. The people leaving are pretty happy. It's a win-win <laughs> in many ways. They're getting four to six months. They go on a vacation in Vanuatu or wherever <laughs> they like. Um, and But the company's saving all the wasted effort and getting mm. straight to the point of finding a rock star because they disproportionately add value. And of course, paying the rock star um, to come in, but also the people within the company, they encourage them to say, all right, if you're going to get poached by someone, just have that conversation yeah. as intel for us. You know, they might want to pay 50% overs. We want to know that because we're going to yeah. go above that 50% overs and yeah. keep you. And if you if you think about the... It might sound weird saying paying someone four to six months of their salary to not work for you, bizarre. But if you think about how other companies do it, big uh, companies with tens of thousands of employees, big public companies, their HR policy is like you've got to try to keep somebody. You've got to go through this... PIP, this performance improvement plan where you've got to document meetings where you've given people multiple warnings and you put them on the plan. They've got to meet with the manager. They've got to be told exactly what they need to improve. They've got to meet with HR every week to show progress. And then maybe eventually after six months of documenting all these meetings, all these improvements, all this wasted time from the manager, from the team, from the HR team, eventually then you can say, okay, you're not good enough. We'll give you the ass. 
so much wasted time. You should have just paid them the six months straight up and, and got rid of them. I remember when I was at uh, ANZ, there was like a, a there's like a four tier system of rank, ranking. I forget what the top three were. There's like mm. excellent, great, good, needs improvement. <laughs> there was no there's no shit. There was just needs improvement, and yeah, that's what I got. I got a needs improvement. Did you? But they, <laughs> they, couldn't, even, they couldn't get rid of me though. Yeah, they oh, couldn't yeah. get rid of you. They should have <laughs> given me the four, if they had said here's forty six month salary. Um, I could have been off their board. Well, they should. They should read. They should play because uh, you were, you were just leaving, man. At nine <laughs> nine ten a.m., you go for away for three hours, go to the gym, catch up with me for a coffee, um, and they just didn't get rid of you. Yeah, you just said, "Oh, you, you need improvement." You go, All right, then I'll, they, go, I'll go improve away from <laughs> the workplace. <laughs> they didn't even. I didn't even get to the level of performance improvement plan. It's just it's so hard to get rid of people in that kind of organization. Whereas Netflix takes the approach that if you're not good enough, we're going to get rid of you and find someone better to fill your spot. And Reed, he even turns this back on himself as well. As even as the big dog, the superstar, he's the CEO. Yeah, C, the mm. CEO of the company. Even he says, "Hey, if you guys find that I'm not performing." If you find that I'm not doing a good enough job or if you find that there's somebody better who could actually improve the whole company, then pay me out, get rid of me and get this better person in because I don't want to be the one dragging everyone down. I want everybody to be learning from the best and have the best person in this position. So, in summary, the culture of reinvention that Netflix did to really kick ass on their way to be who they are today, the first thing they did was increase their talent density. Imagine you rock up to work at 9am on a Monday morning, you got a meeting with your group of your colleagues, you're listening to your boss ramble about his plans for this upcoming retreat, then your voice in your head pops up and totally disagrees with what he's saying. He's proposing an agenda, you know it's going to suck and just not be productive whatsoever. Should you say something in those moments or you know, a lot of us might hesitate and then the moment passes? And then again, later in that meeting, somebody else pops up, somebody who you know is pretty long-winded, pretty repetitive. They start going over this current project that they're working on. They're going to keep going over and over and over the same point. It's dragging on, it's dragging on. They've got their ideas about what they should do next, which you know is not going to work because you've tried it and uh, you've got a feeling that this is just going in the completely wrong direction. Again, that voice in your head is kind of thinking, I should really say something here. Do you speak up? Again, your lips stay sealed. Yeah, this happens all the time, doesn't it? I think in a lot of meetings for a lot of us, everyone's felt moments like this, but a lot of the time we just stay silent because you think if you say something, your view is not going to get supported or you don't want to be seen as the difficult person on the mm. team or just unpleasant to get into an argument and a spout or you're a bit worried that they're going to say, hey, you're not a team player. Come on, just play along with what they're doing. Yeah, it's often a lot easier to stay quiet and at most places, that's probably the way things are done. But at Netflix not saying something when you know that you should say something, he says that's tantamount to being disloyal to the company. If you fail to speak up when you disagree with a colleague or if you've got feedback to someone that could be helpful but you keep it to yourself, then you're actually hurting yourself, you're hurting them and you're hurting the company. So for Netflix, openly voicing opinions and feedback instead of talking and whispering behind their back, it reduces a lot of backstabbing and politics and it allows the company to be real fast, right? You're getting feedback in real time. And the more people here, if you're just hearing stuff, if you're the one who's long-winded just rambling on about nothing and everyone in their own heads is just thinking, geez, here we go again, um, you're probably going to get better because you're not going to do it <laughs> that's again. That's right. So, it's going to tighten up. They're going to give you the, the so high-level dot points. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's why Reed and the, the team at Netflix say you, gotta, you can only say something 
about somebody that you would say to their face or that you have said to their face. If someone comes into Reed's office and starts complaining about a colleague behind their back, Reed says, well, did you speak to this person directly about it? And if the answer is no, then he sends them out and says, come on, you got you got to say it to their face. Don't be trying to play politics and come and complain to me about it. Yes, there's none of that going on whatsoever within the company. And this is what they're doing. They're creating this culture of candor. Radical candor, you could even say as well. To, to uh, name one of Jonesy's favorite books that didn't make it onto the podcast yet. Oh, yeah, it didn't, did it? <laughs> yeah, no, it was an interesting book, that one. But in, in 2003, there was a bit of a problem. Garden Grove in California, um, they had a lot of accidents involving cars and pedestrians and they were very frequent on the streets with primary school, someone just walking the pram and then this car just zooms along. Um, authorities, what they did is they put up speed limit signs in order to get drivers to slow down and police started whipping out the tickets to violators. Uh, but accidentally, rates, they barely budged whatsoever and your morning stroll with the pram, still a little bit of a risk. Yeah, still getting wiped out by a car. You'd think that the risk of a fine um, for going over the speed limit would be enough to kind of stop people from doing what they were doing but it didn't really help at all. So what a few city engineers proposed as a different approach was they put up, they had these dynamic speed signs. So in other words, what they did was you would get instant feedback on exactly how fast you were going. So instead of just having the the plain old speed sign, what it would do is as you drive past, it would register your speed and it would show you exactly how fast you were going and then it would show the speed, the speed limit right next to it. And you'd probably get the big red flashing sign if you're going over the speed limit. And having that instant feedback loop by knowing exactly what you should be doing compared to what you were doing wrong, you can actually say, oh, shit, I better take my foot off the gas here and slow down a touch. Yeah, they th- like some people say, hey, what, what difference would that make? You can see your speed on the dashboard. But it turned out it had a huge difference. So the people in the drive, they slowed down by an average of 14% when they saw the speed displayed on the sign and at the schools, the average speed was down now and um, the lady with the pram was safe to walk mm. again to, with the kids to school. That's right. Something as simple as re-showing people the information that they already had in front of them in a, in a slightly different way was enough to make that 14% reduction in speed and that's massive for something so cheap. So, having feedback is vitally important to actually making behavior change. So, obviously, this is a metaphor for the office and Giving feedback in the office, it's probably a little bit trickier than just whipping up a speed sign. I mean, <laughs> yeah. someone's going to be that speed sign yeah, and just right. give the give the uh, immediate feedback. We always hear in cliches of, hey, pra- praise in public, criticize in private or only give feedback when they ask for it because not everyone's cut up for it. But these sort of comments, they're very counterproductive to Candor and having this open and collaborative workplace that we're trying to do because we're trying to build one built on honesty and trust and sort of self-development. So, Netflix embraces candor and they embrace feedback and they want people to avoid misunderstandings. They want this climate of co-accountability where it's not just the boss giving people feedback, it's everybody giving each other feedback. It reduces the need for a strict hierarchy. It reduces the need for rules and you know monthly, monthly meetings with the boss to get feedback on what you're doing right or you're doing wrong because everybody is helping each other by giving instant feedback and helping each other improve pretty difficult technical skill to jump into but luckily Netflix, they've created a, a framework for all their employees and they've called it the 4A feedback guidelines. really gives you a bit of a hand in understanding how to receive feedback and also how to give it in the best way possible. That's right. You can't just walk around and say, mate, you are shit. This is a disgusting mate, presentation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That just it's, sucks. You're yeah. long-winded. You suck. <laughs> Shut up. 
Yeah, just yeah, give, us, give us the dot points. You've got to do it a little bit uh, more gracefully than that. So the four A's, there's two A's of giving feedback and there's also two A's of receiving feedback because if someone gives you feedback and you crack the shits and throw, throw everything off your desk and go and sulk in the corner, that's pretty bad as well. So you need to give it right and you need to take it right. So, <laughs> geez, Asho, keep it G-rated, mate. <laughs> but uh, so the first one in giving feedback is aiming to assist. So you must... Give the feedback with positive intent. Just saying, hey, you, sh- you shit, mate, you suck. Doesn't sound very uh, much positive t- intent in there. It sounds like you're probably just getting something off your chest or or probably subconsciously, intentionally trying to hurt someone else to further your own political agenda, whatever that might be. That's not tolerated whatsoever. Yeah, if, you, if you've been keeping something pent up and you just uh, let a little outburst out and just basically tear the person shreds. Like if you say, oh, the way you pick your nails in meetings, it's irritating, it's absolutely bloody disgusting, that's wrong feedback. But the right feedback would be like aiming to assist by saying, hey, you know what? If you stop picking your nails in meetings with these external partners, they might actually see you as a bit more professional. They might not be so turned off and so disgusted by you. We can actually build a stronger relationship with these people. It's obviously a pretty weird specific example, but uh, you can't just say what's wrong. You need to actually aim to assist. Yeah. Well, our long-winded mate, you just say, hey, if you would be able to do it briefly, it'd maybe put you in a more of a position of authority and people would think you suck less and maybe I'm going, <laughs> yeah. maybe I've got to learn the four A's. <laughs> and uh, the, the second A of giving feedback is actionable. So you need to give feedback that, they, uh, that focuses on what the recipient of the feedback can do differently. You don't just say, mate, you talk way too much. You should say, you know what? If you summarize this into just the high-level details, everybody would get a good grasp of the project and then everybody can get on with with making improvements. Now, the next bit is receiving the feedback and we've got the third A here and this is appreciate. Normally, like when you're copping something, copping a bit of criticism, it's instinctive to just get on the back foot. just doesn't feel right. doesn't feel good and this is just mm. a reflex that you have to your ego and your re- reputation so I think you do got to be prepared to, to receive the feedback and you need to fight this reaction and just sort of like step aside and just see it appear within yourself and ask yourself to just show for this moment to, that you appreciate what you're copping from the other person. That's right. If, you, if somebody gives you feedback and you don't take it well, then they're not going to give feedback again next time. You've got to appreciate the fact that they've gone out of their way to take a risk. It's uncomfortable for you, but it's also pretty uncomfortable for them too. The fourth A is to accept or discard. It's really cool to be like you got the optionality about it. If you're not getting any feedback um, and no continuous, you know, what's your speed limit sort of thing, then you got nothing to do. But if you're receiving constant feedback, it doesn't mean you get to take everything mm. on. You've got the option to say, all right, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to take that on or say, no, nah, I'm going to discard it. But out of 30, you might just take on 10 and mm. discard 20, but you've got 10 new things you could, you've improved upon. That's right. If the speed limit sign flashes up that you've... 5Ks over the speed limit, you can either accept or discard. You might say, you know what? I'm in a rush for a meeting. I've got to keep speeding. Or you I'm might put the f- <laughs> put foot on the FU. I'm going faster. <laughs> or you might say, you know what? You're right. I should probably slow down so I don't hit that lady with the pram. But it's up to you. You've got to appreciate. You've got to say thanks. But ultimately, the actions is up to you to either take that on board and accept it or say, you know what? I'm not going to accept this one. I like it. So that's the second component of Netflix's culture of reinvention, the way they kicked ass, and that was by building the culture of candor, radical candor, you could say. Erin <laughs> Meyer, the co-author of this book, she's long believed that creative work should not be measured by time. That's a relic of the industrial age when employees had specific tasks, and but now those tasks are done by machines. 
if a person came to Erin and said, hey, Cheryl, she's working like crazy. Let's give her a promotion. Erin would say, well, I don't care how hard she's working. All I really care about is what kind of impact she's making. What if Cheryl was accomplishing amazing things in 25 hours a week from a hammock in Lombok, Indonesia? And then Erin would say, well, let's give her a massive <laughs> raise. Like, <laughs> she's right. bloody awesome. She's <laughs> extremely valuable. That's right. In, to, in today's age, it doesn't matter how many hours you're clocking. It doesn't matter how much you're chained to your desk and just slaving away. All that really matters is how much you're producing, how much you're actually contributing to the company. So, when it comes to how performance is judged, hard work is irrelevant and all that matters is how much you're getting done. And this is why in 2003, Netflix made a big change to their company and I think there's a few companies following suit now. Some person, some employee asked Reed, said, look, we're working online some weekends, we're responding to emails at odd hours, we're taking the afternoon off here and there, we're obviously not tracking our hours work per week then why the hell are we tracking our days of vacation per year? I mean, on average, like, there's a much more variance in the hours per week that people's work. I mean, some people are 70 hours a week, some people are 40. Um, Why should we care if someone takes 50 out of 52 weeks or 48 or 46? It really doesn't make a big difference. So, what they did was they scrapped their vacation policy. So, they're they had uh, and they had no more vacation policy. They didn't say, hey, everyone gets two weeks off a year plus five, six days. They just said, you know what? If you're working hard, you're getting your job done. There's no rules. Take, you know, take a week off, take three weeks off, take six weeks off. Whatever you need to do, then go for it. As long as you're getting your job done, then it's on you. This was super attractive for all the most talented people out there, especially the ones who are the old clock watchers who uh, Maxwell wrote about in <laughs> the five levels of leadership. You know, the people just love just at 4.59, they look at the clock and they're just out the door at 5 o'clock sort of thing. Um, so, totally opposite to that and it really signals freedom to the employees and it really signals that they're trusted to do the right thing. When Reed did this, he, he had two recurring nightmares. One nightmare, it's the middle of summer, he's late to an important meeting, he tears into the car park, looks around, there's not really many cars around and then he sprints into the building, he's yelling out, Susie, to the office, David, Jackie, Samantha, come on quick, we've got to have this quick meeting before this massive important meeting with the client. He looks around, there's, there's no one oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, he walks through, he finally finds Patty, his HR manager, uh, the one who made this unlimited vacation policy. He says, where is everyone? And then Patty says, oh, well, it's summer, everyone's gone to the beach. Obviously, that's, not a, that's a big problem that could come with this, with this unlimited vacation policy. The other nightmare, quite the opposite. It's in the middle of winter. There's a crazy blizzard outside. The entire workforce is stuck in the office with no way to get in or out. There's piles of snow blocking every exit. It's a bit of a metaphor here. Um, the office is crammed full of people. Some are working. Some are lying on the floors trying to sleep. Everyone's just working too bloody hard and too scared to turn away from their computer screens. And at this point, everyone's exhausted and unproductive and they don't want to be the first one to walk out the door and get out of the office. Yeah, Reed, he might try and he picked them up off the floor, plonked them in their desk, tried to make their fingers work to type on the computer, but nothing was happening. They'd just been so overworked that they were unproductive. So they're kind of the two possible downsides of this no vacation policy. Um, the first is that people take advantage of it and take holidays all the time. And the second is they think that no vacation policy means no vacation policy. And that's saying <laughs> that, okay, well, there's no policy, so I don't get two weeks off a year, so I'm not going to take any time off. So, to solve the first problem of everyone just spending half a year in Lombok, Indonesia, miss that joint, obviously, it keeps coming up. Um, there's plenty of work cultures out there that would take the piss a bit, I think. Uh, if you 
give too much freedom and responsibility. It just wouldn't work out. People would would just uh, abuse it and they'd probably lose it in the end. But if the culture from the very start, they've done the things we've already spoken about in building that high talent and density, uh, they've got the radical candor where people give it straight. If you give people freedom and responsibility in that culture, it's going to be amazing. Things are going to go out very well and very differently. Yeah, they're going to take the right amount of time off. They're going to know that, hey, if there's a big, uh, you know, there's a big annual strategy meeting, they're not going to be taking that time off. They're going to be working up until that point and then maybe take time afterwards. Or they're not just going to, you know, one day things get tough so they just say to the boss, hey, I'm off, I'm taking a month off now. They're going to do it in the right way. You know, they might realize that if you're going to take a day off, then just tell them at the start of the week. If you're going to take a week off, give them a, a month's warning. If you're going to take a month off, then maybe give them three months of notice. You know, they're going to do the right things. If you've built all these, uh, the right culture up until this point, it's going to work out well. And to combat the second problem where no one's taking any leave, you need the people at the very top of the model to show that it's okay. And this is where they give the leadership to really just show the policy. So they're taking long vacations. So Reid will go off and he'll take his six weeks off or whatever he needs to do and go traveling. And then the people down the line, they'll know it's okay for them to do the same sort of thing. I mean, if Reid is working 51 weeks of the year, um, hmm. seven days a week sort of thing, from the depth of the bottom of the line, if he's your leader, yeah. you'd go, oh, I'm going to... You're never going to take it. You know, uh, yeah. So, it's really about uh, the the people at the top modeling what the right type of behavior is and then encouraging everybody else to do the same, which kind of flows uh, into the, the other thing they do in this sort of control area is that they lead with context, not control. They don't tell people what to do. They just set the framework around it and let people decide for themselves. So, many leaders out there, they use control processes to give... Employees some freedom to approach the task as they choose, but they still sort of allow the boss to come in on their mm. um, their their unicorn and <laughs> on the sunset and save the day and just get the job done when they need to. For example, they might um, put in a process like management by objectives and set the employees some KPIs and then monitor the progress at uh, regular intervals and just sort of judge them on their final performance. And they might control the quality of their work by just putting a little error. Uh, reduction processes, right? Like, you know, the boss has to see every email before it goes out or something mm. like that. That's leading by control. That's right. That's control that you're getting into micromanagement territory there, but the boss retains full control over what the employee does. Leading by context is much more difficult and it gives a hell of a lot more freedom to the employees. And what leading by context means is that you provide all of the information, you kind of set the objectives, you kind of set the direction, you kind of provide the background, you provide a bit of a framework. And then you let the team members make the decisions for themselves. You're not holding their hand. You're not making every decision for them and telling them what to do. You're just kind of setting the tone and saying, cool, it's over to you now. I give you freedom, responsibility, trust to make whatever decision you need to make. Of course, leading of context again, first big prerequisite is high talent density. If you've got someone who's a three out of 10, go on full control to make huge decisions on the behalf of the company, things aren't going to go very well for you at all. An interesting story is like imagine if you're a parent and a lot of people, it's not very hard because they actually are parents but let's say you've got a 16-year-old boy, um, loves to draw Japanese-style anime and solve complex Sudoku problems and plays the sax. So, an interesting little kid. <laughs> and lately, nice kid but he's going to parties with older friends on Saturday nights and you know they get loose. They, they drink and drive, they party pretty hard. You don't want him to follow in their footsteps and drink and drive and or get in the car that anyone's on the booze after a big night out. 
So how do you, how would you approach this sort of problem? Yeah, you've got you've got two ways to approach this. One is the control. You can decide which parties your son does or doesn't go to. You can monitor their actions whilst at the party. You can put a little tracker app on their phone. You can call the parents of the party beforehand. You can probably check in a couple of times throughout the party. You know, if they want to go out on a Saturday night, there's a process. They need to. The kid needs to explain exactly what they plan on doing, who they're seeing, who they're going with, um, how much they're going to be drinking, how they're getting back. Uh, and then you're going to probably speak to a few different people as well and make sure that it's all good and you can decide if they go to that party or not. That's the control method. Yeah, well, the other way is, of course, leading with context. So, here you set the context with your son so you just both align from the start. So, sit down with him, you talk about why teenagers drink and you might say, hey, a bit of fun back in my day too. <laughs> the dangers associated with uh, drink drink driving. In the kitchen and house, you pour a few um, glasses of alcohol, you give him a bit of whiskey, you give him a bit of scotch. Uh, remember Tony Robbins, used to, the parent just gave him six cans when he was <laughs> turning him off alcohol. Anyway, but you just show him like the amount it takes to become tipsy drunk or blacked out. I remember I didn't know this when I was in year eight. I just like thought beer was like scotch and I had fucking bought, bought a glass and just <laughs> and I was done for the night. But if someone had to just Pour me a little bit of whiskey and you, you just taste and go, all right, that's some strong stuff right there. Mm. You're sort of learning and you get in the context about what alcohol is and understanding what are some of the risks. That's right. And then from there, you allow your son to make their own decisions. You're allowing them to exercise their own judgment. They're going to realize the dangers of drink driving, obviously, for themselves and their friends. And they're going to probably decide for themselves, look, if I'm drunk, I don't want to drive. If, if somebody else is drunk and driving, I don't want to be in that car either uh, rather than just micromanaging because obviously if you go full control method, they're going to try and rebel. If you go the context method, they're probably going to use their own better judgment. Yeah, and you're preparing the son to make just good decisions in general mm. for themselves on a Saturday because there's going to be times when the parents aren't there just to, to follow it and understand exactly what's going on in their lives, obviously. So there's going to be a myriad of new situations they're going to be better equipped for which is exactly what it's like in the workforce. At Netflix, for example, they don't use like the pyramid structure of decision-making where it's control where the person at the top makes all the decisions and kind of passes it down the line and it works in that kind of way. Reed looks at this context method of leadership more as like a tree. He's kind of like the, the roots, whereas he sets the initial context for where he wants to go as the company. So Reed at the roots, he might say, we want to expand and go global. So there's just the context. Within that context, you can decide are the things that I'm doing helping this context of going global or not. We'll talk about the example of the full tree structure in, in a second. If you think about a pyramid structure, let's say if you're working at a creative studio, and this is probably the same for all organizations, um, something important came up, you're at the bottom of the food chain and if it wasn't at your level of decision-making, you'd probably have to ask your manager and if it's important to their level, they'd have to ask their manager. It's extremely, extremely important. They'd ask ask their manager. So then at the end of the day, you've just got the CEO who has all the most important decisions somehow just flow all the way up and then it's on the CEO to make the big calls. But at Netflix, it's the totally other way around with this tree. As you said, Ash Joe Reed is at the roots. He's not making decisions, but he's at the roots setting the culture and just saying, hey, you need to go global, everyone. The next sort of level up might be the trunk and that might be Ted. What's big Ted's job? Ted Sarandos. He's like the head of content. So Ted will say, risk big, learn big. So then the next person up the, the big branch 
Um, Melissa Cobb, she says, bring ice cabins and mud huts to Bangkok. Whatever <laughs> so, that means. <laughs> so she said in the context there. She's confusing her employees, I think. <laughs> no. But anyway. So she's what she's saying is like, obviously, kids in Bangkok, they don't just want to listen, uh, watch TV shows about Bangkok. They want to watch TV shows about Kenya and they want to watch TV shows about uh, igloos and about the Inuits and stuff like that. So she's saying that bring ice cabins and mud huts to Bangkok. And then the next one up, Dominique Bazet. She's kind of on the... A smaller branch, but she says, when we're making animated shows, let's aim high. And then next, you've got Aram Yukubian. He's on a little small branch, and he's been pitched the show called Mighty Little Beam in India. And he's wondering, okay, should I sign this show? Should we put it into production or not? So he's now got the decision. He doesn't have to go back to Dominique, back to Melissa, back to Ted, back to Reed and say, guys, should we sign this or not? He's the one. He's the what they call the informed captain. He can make the decision based on all this context from the roots of the tree all the way up. So, this is a multi-million dollar financial decision and uh, compared to other companies, you're at the very bottom of the hierarchy in that sense. But So, you're the entry level sort of thing and you're making the call on a multi-million dollar decision. And that's because if everyone else has done their job and seen the context right, you can sort of put this into your situation. Um, I mean, the one directly above said mighty learnings from Little Beam, meaning that, all right, if we make this decision here, we're going to get mighty learnings either way about the market in in India, about what they want to watch. So, uh, he made the call. We're going to go with this and didn't need approval from the boss. Like a lot of stories and books, it turned out to be a wild success. You didn't hear the ones that (laughs) failed, of course. But yeah, that's what they brought a few ice cabins to Bangkok and a few mud huts as well. <laughs> yeah. Within that context. They risky, they learned big, and they went global. So there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> so now that we've had a bit of a glimpse into how Netflix operates and how they managed to turn around getting this rejection from Blockbuster and then going in a completely opposite direction, going gangbusters while Blockbuster went bust. We've kind of got a decision to make if you're leading a team or managing a company. We can choose to keep our old school industrial style of leadership or we can implement this culture of freedom and responsibility, choosing speed and flexibility and offering more freedoms to employees. The growth and importance of intellectual property and the creative services in the economy um, is really requesting a lot of companies and their leaders to nurture inventiveness and innovation. Don't go out there and kill it. So this is a, an increasingly demanded thing in the marketplace. But most companies, of course, they're following these old paradigms. So the objective used to be not making errors, not stuffing up and re- replicating as much as possible in, say, the industrial era. Today, it's very contrary. It's all about speed, creativity, and agility. In the past, the metaphor was probably like a a symphony orchestra. You've got every specialist within their one specific role playing their one specific instrument. Then you've got the conductor up the front that's overseeing and managing everything. That was the old way of doing it. A better way of doing it is probably getting rid of the conductor, tearing up the sheet music and becoming more of a jazz band instead. You set the context, you set the the rhythm, you maybe have the chord progressions and and you have the tone, then everybody can improvise on top of that. As long as you've got the right talented types of people, then there might be a little bit of chaos at first, but with the right conditions, it's going to turn out into some pretty magical music. 